And Saturday, March 9th, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., we'll see you here. Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, asking you to support KPFK. One of the best ways you can do it is simply by becoming a sustainer, pledging $10 or more each month. In that way, you help to protect this independent radio station. And sign up today. You can join KPFK's sustainer program by logging on to kpfk.org. 90.7 KPFK, Los Angeles. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Good evening. It's March 1st, and in tonight's Friday edition of KBFK's Rebel Alliance News, U.S. government avoids shutdown. For now, Republican poll says California isn't America. Newsom adds target abortion travel bans. Marcy Winograd with an uproar at UCSB. Don DeBar on the doomsday clock. Polina Vasiliev brings us non-NATO news. And all this and more coming up. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'm Hal Lore. Would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams hole in a jar. And be better off than you are Or would you rather be a mule? All right. In the latest example, the Congress would have trouble ordering a pizza. The House managed to pass a temporary agreement to avoid a partial government shutdown on Thursday as lawmakers continued to work behind the scenes to hash out a long-term plan to keep the government's doors open. The legislation passed the House by a vote of 320 to 99, with the vast majority of Democrats supporting it, alongside more than half of GOP lawmakers. This stopgap continuing resolution will be the fourth congressional extension since an original failure to fund the government deadline passed in September 2023. This time, however, lawmakers are certain they are making significant progress toward a long-term government for America. The extension lawmakers passed on Thursday was contingent on a prior pact that would provide a massive raft of government spending, but that money is now slated to expire on March 8th under the latest continuing resolution, and the rest of the federal government's funds are scheduled to expire on March 22nd. We are in agreement that Congress must work together in a bipartisan manner to fund our government, congressional leaders said in a joint statement on Wednesday, announcing the deal. But keep this in mind. The text of the plan to provide more permanent funding for government agencies beyond the March deadlines hasn't been released yet either. While House Speaker Mike Johnson said at a weekly news conference that text will be unveiled over the weekend, it still may not be a done deal. Ultra-conservative House lawmakers have repeatedly criticized Republican leaders in the lower chamber over short-term funding extensions that did so again, leading up to Thursday's vote with the House Freedom Caucus on Wednesday pushing back on Mike Johnson's negotiating stance 
disappointed that he hasn't chosen to dig in and fund a government that will secure the border, and while conservatives have lobbied Johnson and GOP leadership to pass a spending plan that would trigger 1% spending cuts across the board for the government. For Mike Johnson's part, this short-term extension is one of the few times the House Speaker has made a clear-cut decision. The Louisiana Republican Speakership has been at times confusing to rank-and-file GOP members as he has kept his cards close to his chest at critical moments. I think he's doing what you're supposed to do. That's bank the wins that you can get with the power that you have, Representative Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, who criticized Johnson, told reporters on Thursday. He is conforming with the reality of the situation. Politics is trying to achieve the best outcome you can in the environment you're in. It's a lot of drama to lead up to something that is inevitable, but the Speaker should be commended for taking a wise course of action in the environment wherein he added. All statements of the modern American reality that a Congress so dysfunctional that a what's-the-least-we-can-do-and-still-keep-the-government-open scenario is considered a victory. Welcome to the KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In what should be good news for the skyrocketing price of everything, the ports of L.A. and Long Beach see a cargo uptick in January, where retailers who stocked up early before the Lunar New Year brought strong cargo numbers for both of the ports. As factories in Asia typically close down for 10 days spurring cargo owners to actively replenish supplies ahead of that holiday. The Port of Los Angeles is off to a great start, Executive Director Gene Soroka said Wednesday, February 14th, during his monthly cargo news briefing with reporters. He was joined this month by California Lieutenant Governor Elena Kunalakis. It was the second-best January on record, Soroka said, and was 18% higher than cargo numbers during the same month last year. The same scenario played out at the neighboring Port of Long Beach, where January cargo numbers were up 17.5% from the same month in 2023. Going forward in the next few months, Soroka said the numbers can be expected to drop and settle in, but overall the year ahead looks positive with the hopes that 2024 will be a little more normalized for cargo flow than 2023. January cargo numbers at the Port of Los Angeles totaled 855,765 20-foot equivalent units, or TEUs, the industry's measuring standard, making it the second-best start to the year on record. And the Port of Long Beach showed similar numbers as it moved 674,015 TEUs in January. It was the fifth consecutive monthly year-over-year -year increase in the Port of Long Beach following 13 months of declines in cargo movements at the port, and they hope to see continued growth through 2024 as the busiest consumer port in the Americas gradually recaptures market share. While the latter months in 2023 saw cargo begin to grow once again, the calendar year saw a sluggish start in both the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. The upcoming election and questions lingering about the economy and consumer spending levels could pose some uncertainty, but the port is in good position 
with the new six-year labor contract in place and plans moving forward to build a work training campus. Executive directors surround the ongoing push to move to infrastructure to three years, the lieutenant governor said the federal government has implemented some pretty significant programs to prepare for a carbon-neutral energy future. The result has been described, she said, as a $3 trillion wall of money that can be directed into a state like California to better develop our infrastructure. As the 2045 goal of carbon neutrality gets closer and closer, Kunalakis said more focus has been on the role of California's 11 ports, particularly the largest of those in the combined Los Angeles-Long Beach gateway. Awareness of issues such as the supply chain, Soroka added, has grown in the past few years following the pandemic, when a massive backlog received daily national headlines. Lieutenant Governor Kunalakis, however, indicated that California's projected deficit may pose challenges to ongoing infrastructure and other spending. The Port of L.A. is operating currently at about 75 to 80 percent capacity, so it is prepared to accept more cargo when or if needed. Asked about the role of hydrogen fuel going forward, Kunalakis said it has become an important area of investment and looks to be a hopeful part of the overall solution as the effort towards clean energy continues, adding that the push towards the transition remains strong for Los Angeles Long Beach to become the first 100% green port complex with zero emissions in the world. KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. It's not really news that California continues to struggle with its staggering homeless population as lawmakers in many cities scramble to care for the hundreds of thousands of unhoused Californians. Politicians seem to agree that the homelessness epidemic is perhaps the paramount crisis facing California, and one way they are attempting to find a solution is through a proposed bill that would ban homeless encampments. California Senate Bill 1011 would make it illegal for homeless people to form encampments near most public spaces, while also creating incentives for people to use homeless shelters. While most agree that a legislative agenda is necessary to solve California's homelessness crisis, there are some legal questions surrounding the passage of SB 1011. The text of the proposed bill would ban homeless encampments within 500 feet of public or private school, open space, or major transit stop. And in addition, SB 1011 would prohibit homeless people from sitting, lying, sleeping, or stormant of any person or any street, sidewalk, or other public place is guilty of a misdemeanor. SB 1011 already in of the its prospect court ruling spaces. That case, known as Grants Pass versus Johnson, is being fought over an Oregon City ordinance that says people cannot sleep in public sidewalks, streets, or alleyways at any time as a matter of individual or public safety. Cities in California have also faced lawsuits over similar homeless restrictions. So, as a result, how the Supreme Court later this year rules will likely be the determining factor of the legality of SB 1011. 
KJPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. This week from Sacramento, the biggest challenge facing lawmakers and Governor Gavin Newsom is the state budget deficit. And it just got bigger. Today, the Legislative Analyst Office projected the shortfall as $15 billion higher, or $73 billion. The Analyst's Office had pegged the 2024-25 deficit at $58 billion in January, using Newsom's revenue estimates when he presented his initial budget proposal. Last Friday, Newsom's Department of Finance reported that preliminary general fund cash receipts in January were $5 billion below, or nearly 20%, of the governor's budget forecast. So unless the state revenues pick up significantly, the bigger number will make it more difficult to balance the state budget just through dipping into reserves and targeted spending cuts. But exactly how the state can dig its way out, at least in the Assembly, remains to be seen. Speaker Robert Rivas told reporters that the budget has been at the forefront of conversations among Assembly Democrats and that he is very concerned with the growing deficit. Speaker Rivas praised the governor's commitment to preserving classroom funding and said he didn't see a way to avoid dipping into the state's reserves as the governor's January budget plan proposed. So in the coming weeks, Rivas's plan calls for an oversight budget subcommittee he formed in December to review the state's spending on housing. But as legislative leaders and the governor have noted, the budget deficit won't be addressed just through oversight and spending cuts. It also means tougher paths for bills lawmakers introduced this year, including the return of the single-payer health care effort by Democratic Assembly members. And while the governor has shot down any attempt to raise taxes or create new ones to increase state revenues, Speaker Rivas did not take a position. But Rivas may have to make some decisions soon. A spokesperson for Newsom's Department of Finance has already issued a statement calling on the legislature to take early action on $8 billion in savings to address the looming deficit. Gavin Newsom will propose an updated budget in May before negotiations with legislative leaders and a final spending blueprint in June, and not to be left out, this week's updated deficit projection also prompted concern and criticism from the Republican caucus, which I'm sure comes as a complete shock to anyone who follows the subtle nuances of American two-party politics. KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Democratic lawmakers are saying that Gavin Newsom's ads against red states' abortion travel bans aren't just a stunt. Because when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in 2022, the issue of abortion travel bans was made clear, even by U.S. Conservative Justice Brett M. Kavanaugh, that they are unconstitutional. But that didn't stop local travel bans from popping up in Texas less than a year later. Since then, Idaho has passed similar laws, and Oklahoma and Mississippi are debating following along. And in Tennessee, officials not only want to make taking a minor to get an abortion a felony if a parent did not consent, they also want to make sharing information about abortion laws of other states illegal. 
Red State Republic. Like Kavanaugh's opinion, California Governor Gavin Newsom is taking up of losing his political by states where lawmakers are debating whether to make traveling out-of-state reproductive care a crime. Because, as Justice Kavanaugh pointed out, interstate travel is a constitutional right. So they say, although Newsom may enjoy jabbing at his conservative counterparts for political points, this ad campaign is not simply partisan. It becomes a question of how much more government surveillance do people want as a society. To enforce travel bans like the one Tennessee is proposing would require authorities to keep track of things like where and for how long pregnant women are going, and of course, the ongoing condition of the pregnancy. American privacy has been losing ground ever since passage of the Patriot Act, driven by the attacks on 9-11. But now, blind partisanship has not only taken over the right of reproductive care, but those states are looking to criminalize interstate travel to enforce their Christo-conservative agenda. Even for a nation that has acclimated to 20 years of unconstitutional invasion of privacy since 9-11, these latest laws are a big leap into a dystopian America. An America that wants to criminalize women, women who may be the victims of rape or incest, who might be or have been pregnant, who might have crossed state lines, who are suspected of receiving medical care while out of state, or even of hoping to receive care. Because let's face it, the legal battle over reproductive rights has always been a religious war, a battle for dominance over human rights, where red state America doesn't believe a woman should have complete agency over her own body. And now, the men who dominate many state legislatures not being satisfied with controlling what women can do within state lines, are trying to prevent any form of reproductive dissent by controlling whether or not women can cross state lines for care. So even if we roll our eyes at Gavin Newsom's political gamesmanship of running ads against abortion travel bans in red states, it's hard to ignore the message on this issue when an over-policed, over-jailed society has officials in red states thinking about criminalizing interstate travel just to persecute women over what they can and can't do with their own bodies. KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. If you listen to America's corporate media, you know that California's national reputation as a place of dreams and prosperity is basically over. If you ask Republicans who dislike almost all aspects of the state and many U.S. Democrats who see it as too costly to live in and a poor place to raise a family. Nationwide, 50% of U.S. adults believe the state is in decline, according to a new survey for the Los Angeles Times. And political polarization has intensified the negativity. 84% of Republicans believe the state is not really American, the survey found. 3 in 10 Republicans say the home of Yosemite's sheer peaks, Sequoia's towering redwoods and Malibu's beaches, has a worse natural environment than other states. Nearly 40% of Republicans don't even think California is a good place to visit, though a majority in both parties say they have been to the state 
according to the survey of 1,004 adults, conducted January 26th through 28th by Leisure, a Canadian firm that has polled extensively in the U.S. If you are a conservative American, you basically do not like California, said Christian Bork, Ledger's executive vice president and the poll's supervisor. California has, however, maintained its reputation as a new frontier, particularly among young people who have long fueled the state's energy. Younger Americans are more likely to say that California is a trendsetter for the U.S., with six in ten adults nationwide thinking the state has had a positive impact on the country. The share who see California as a trendsetter rise to 7 in 10 among those ages 18 to 34. A similar share of younger Americans also say that California's impact on the U.S. has been positive. And younger people were also twice as likely at 43% to say they would consider moving to California as are other Americans with job opportunities cited as the top reason at 36%. But not so much among Republicans. Among Republicans, two-thirds said it has been a net negative where partisanship drives opinion can also be seen in how much Americans see California overlap with opinions on polarized topics such as climate change, gender equality, racism, and abortion. Because the truth is that Californians do have notably different views than the rest of the U.S. on some issues. Abortion stands out. Nearly 46% of Californians say abortion should be legal in all cases, a view shared by just over one in four adults nationwide. Beyond partisanship, the poll underscores how economic trends of recent years have affected California's image. Only two in five Americans called California a good place to raise a family, and a similar share said the economy is strong. Fewer than three in ten people nationwide judged the state's colleges and universities consistently ranked among the best in academic surveys as better than other states' higher education options, but the degree to which political and ideological beliefs color such opinions was pervasive, where political division has subsumed many aspects of American life in recent years. And let's face it, California has been the target of particularly virulent attacks from conservative media personalities and politicians as it has shifted from political battleground to democratic lock. The attacks accelerated during Donald Trump's presidency when the state often sued the federal government, especially on immigration and environmental policies. So for many Americans, as the state has morphed into an emblem of progressivism propelled by California's push to sign laws designed to combat red state policies on climate, abortion, immigration status, gender, and other hot-button issues. And many American Democrats are just not on board with California's left-coast un-American policy shift either, apparently, because 30% of U.S. Democrats now call California too liberal, a view shared by 81% of Republicans. Before we go back to KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles would like to remind you that we are in our February fun drive. So here we are, pausing for the cause as we enter the throes of another election season to let you know that, as always, we need your help. Because even with everything happening in the world, if you watch mainstream news on cable, you know that independent media 
that isn't enslaved to the corporate agenda is more important now than ever. Without voices like KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, the only things you'll hear are what America's owners want you to hear, and the only choices you have will be the ones those owners allow you to have. So please pick up your phone and call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Or go online to kpfk.org and donate to this one-of-a-kind LA station. Become a member of our sustainer circle by donating $25, $50, or more and join the KPFK family. Think about it. KPFK is like the Hollywood Bowl, the Observatory, East LA, or the Santa Monica Pier. It's that part of the very fabric of LA bringing you commercial-free and independent programming with voices you just don't hear anywhere else. Voices from the community, your community, the voices of people like you that will say what's on their minds instead of what some marketing department told them to say. Voices of opposition, peace, defiance, hope, resistance in a world that seeks to silence the truth and enforce conformity. So please, go to kpfk.org and donate what you can to help KPFK keep these airwaves independent and free. Pick up your phone and call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. And make your pledge today. Because as I always say, radio silence for a Los Angeles icon like KPFK would be a tragic loss for all of us. 90.7 KPFK Los Angeles. The blinds were closed. The doors locked at UCSB's Multicultural Center. KPFK's Marcy Winograd reports on the latest campus uproar over signage and doxing as well as the congressional race on the Central Coast ballot. UC Santa Barbara administrators have temporarily closed the campus multicultural center and suspended its Instagram account. This after pro-Palestine student activists posted about 100 signs on the center's walls and windows. Signs read, silence is complicity. We are not disposable. Free the speech, free the people. Justice for Palestine. Blood on your hands. Divestment now. The olive trees will rise again. When people are occupied, resistance is justified, and Zionism is terrorism. One sign was directed at Tessa Vexler. She's the president of the Associated Students at UCSB. That sign read, as president, you should not be anti-Palestinian freedom. Both UCSB's Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace have issued statements saying they did not authorize the signage and were not involved. According to the Daily Nexus, that's the UCSB campus newspaper, the controversy began Monday morning before 9 a.m. when signs on the doors of the Multicultural Center read, Zionists, not welcome. Around 11 a.m. in the Center Lounge, students expressing pro-Palestine sentiment gathered to create more posters as students in favor of Israel sat together in protest of what had already been posted. Discussions around Palestine and Israel began shortly thereafter. ASB President Bexler entered the lounge at around 12.30 to also object to the signage. Later, Chancellor Henry Yang and other university administration members sent out an email to the UCSB community condemning the signage. The email read, we were distressed to learn of incidents over the weekend that included offensive social media messages and signage at the Multicultural Center entrance. The signage has been removed and the campus is conducting a bias incident review 
based on potential discrimination related to protected categories that include religion, citizenship, and national or ethnic origin. He also said the posting of such messages is a violation of our principles of community and inclusion. ASB President Vexler took to her personal Instagram saying, I am floored by today's events. I am deeply upset by the blatant anti-Semitic messaging displayed at UCSB's Multicultural Center. Critics of Zionism object to the conflation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. They say anti-Zionism is objection to a Jewish-defined state and advocate for a state where all are equal. Anti-Semitism, on the other hand, they say is bigotry, discrimination against Jews as a people. The Daily Nexus reports various Twitter or ex-users have doxxed Multicultural Center faculty and staff, saying people were at the Monday gathering who were not there and sharing individual contact information on social media. Instagram users have also left negative comments on departmental accounts like UCSB's African Diasporic Cultural Resource Center. The uproar at UCSB comes in the midst of another controversy at UC Berkeley, where university officials have called for a criminal investigation of pro-Palestinian students who protested an IDF reservist speaking on campus. The Daily Californian, that's that campus newspaper, reported that protesters chanted killers on campus as they banged on the windows outside where the IDF soldier had been invited to speak in the midst of Israel's genocide in Gaza. Listen. In the wake of the incidents at UC Berkeley and UC Santa Barbara, the University of California announced a new system-wide Office of Civil Rights and a new anti-discrimination policy that prohibits harassment. On Tuesday, March 5th, voters in Santa Barbara and throughout the Central Coast will cast their ballots for one of three congressional candidates. Elena Pascarella, the peace candidate, a progressive Democrat, is challenging the incumbent Democrat Salud Carbajal. And Republican Thomas Cole is also in the race. Cole, the founder of Analytics 805, an election data research company in Montecito, said the government is bloated, is overspending, faces a national debt, and needs to build the border wall. He also described himself as a peace candidate who would vote to defund the war in Ukraine. The incumbent Carbajal is seeking a fourth term in Congress, he has co-sponsored bills to restrict gun violence and fund the Department of Defense to crack down on fentanyl trafficking. Carbajal is also campaigning to send another $14 billion in weapons to Israel while opposing a ceasefire. Code Pink caught up with Carbajal on Capitol Hill. Hello, Congressman. How are you? Good. Good. We work with the, uh, the people in your district who've been calling for a ceasefire. And I have been pushing for humanitarian aid and for us to get to a point where we can get to a ceasefire. I think it's important 
to get to a ceasefire and to make sure the hostages are released. So I, I certainly understand the goal and the objective and the advocacy. There's 30,000 people who have been killed. There's people who are starving to death. You don't think it's time to call for a ceasefire? I think we need to get to a ceasefire, absolutely. By calling for a ceasefire. How, that's how we get there is to call for a ceasefire. Well, I think until we can see the release of the hostages and perhaps the have only Hamas, way to have the Hostages released is to call for a ceasefire. We saw that in the last pause that happened. That was the only time that hostages were released. I think we should call for Hamas to surrender. It would be really important. You don't have any influence on Hamas. You have influence on the Israeli government that is doing the bombing. Did you see yesterday? All these people who were killed as they're going to get flour so they can eat because they're starving. No, absolutely. Very concerning about uh, all these humanitarian. Aid that needs to make its well, way. Well, we down. have to stop it, and it's our money and it's our bombs. You see, the majority of the American people want a ceasefire. The majority Sorry, of the Democrats want a ceasefire. The people in your district have been pleading with you for a ceasefire. Representative, please, Thank it's you. time Congrats. to call for a ceasefire. Running against Salute Carbajal is Elena Pascarella, a peace activist a former public school teacher from Ojai, who has been speaking at rallies in support of a ceasefire in Gaza and worked to successfully pass a ceasefire resolution at the Ojai City Council. She told KPFK why she is challenging Carbajal. I believe that our government hasn't been working for us for quite some time, and I've been frustrated, actually, with my representative, Salud Carbajal, and his connection to the military-industrial complex. I've been a peace activist for many years. I've worked with refugees. I work with community centers here in my community, working to spread the information about what the military has done in the past and what it continues to do now. And so I felt that we needed to have a choice. I wanted you to have a choice out there and a choice for peace and something different than what we've been uh, used to. Right now, we're spending $886 billion a year on the military. Right now in Congress, there's another bill up for $95 billion for the war in Israel with the Palestinians and for Ukraine and for Taiwan. So it's just this endless cycle of wars that the government keeps funding because there's money in it. And we need to divest from the military economy and we need to focus at home in a peace economy. We have so many needs here of the unhoused. They say that the, the housing situation could be fixed with $20 billion. And yet we're sending $14 billion right now in this supplemental pro uh, bill to Israel. Pascarella, who wants big money out of politics, is running on small donations, spending less than $5,000 on her campaign for Congress. In Santa Barbara, on Chumash land, I'm Marcy Winograd for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. This week, a number of events made the sound of an approaching global conflict a little louder, and the doomsday clock moved to a mere instant before midnight. Don DeBar has more. We really hope that the population of those countries, they are aware of what the people that they elected are toying with. That was Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov speaking Friday at a press conference in Antalya, Turkey. He echoed statements made a day earlier by Russia's President Vladimir Putin 
Putin in a speech to legislators in Moscow warned that Western officials currently indulging in escalatory rhetoric should realize they are invoking the specter of an all-out nuclear war. The most recent escalatory report came Thursday in the form of an audio recording that's claimed to be a discussion by senior German military officers on how to attack the Crimean Bridge in Russia. The full text of that recording was published by RT's editor-in-chief, Margarita Simoyan, on Friday. She reported that Russian security officials leaked the recording hours earlier and said the original audio would be released shortly. It was released later Friday. The recorded conversation allegedly took place February 19th and included General Ingo Gerhardt's Germany's Air Force commander, and senior leaders responsible for mission planning. When assessing the intelligence necessary for targeting the missiles that would be used in the attack, Gerhards allegedly said there are plenty of, quote, people in civilian clothes with American accents, closed quote, who are available in Kiev to cover for the Germans. Foreign Minister Lavrov also referenced that part of the tape Friday. We know for a fact that the NATO soldiers are there, so which are masked as mercenaries or in some other way. But in that conversation, there are a number of interesting things when these German generals, when they discussed what would be the most cunning way to deliver long-range weapons to Ukraine. They mentioned towers, missiles, to attack the Crimean bridge and how they could do that. And they were also discussing, is it possible without going to Ukraine remotely to target these missiles. And one of the generals said, you know, still, it would be the direct involvement. So they understand what they're talking about. Gerhard's alleged comment appears to confirm a report in last Sunday's New York Times that the CIA is not only active in Ukraine, the article claimed that Langley has 12 secret bases on Ukrainian soil actively working against Russia. The head of Russia's FSB, or Federal Security Service, Alexander Bortnikov told Russian television Thursday that the CIA has many bases in Ukraine when asked about that New York Times report. All of this in turn takes place in the context of a recent statement by France's President Macron that NATO troops might be used in Ukraine to prevent a rout of Kiev's forces that was followed by a warning this week from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the U.S. military which Lavrov also referenced. Secretary Austin, Defense Secretary Austin, after he was discharged from the hospital, he claimed that if Ukraine will suffer a defeat at the hands of Russia, NATO will have to fight against Russia. So there is a quote, but I'm not quoting directly him, but that was the gist of what he has said. For more on that, we go to Moscow to speak with analyst Mark Sloboda, Mark, what do you make of all of this? Okay, so um, the uh, current news that is kind of rocking the uh, foreign policy and military analyst world um, is that uh, the French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, um, called uh, kind of a a last-minute spur meeting in Paris that he invited 20 European leaders, and the U.S. had someone there as well, leave Canada. Right, that was this past Monday. Um, it was it billed as a quote-unquote peace conference, all these things are, and 
Um, anyway, that's the way it was billed. But what it actually turned out to be, first of all, the Slovak prime minister, Robert Fitzo, um, who is a critic, shall we say, a Ukraine uh, skeptic um, from a far left uh, position, right. who is now coordinating with um, uh, Viktor Orban, right. um, whom is a similar position, but from a right conservative position. Uh, anyway, Robert Fitzo said not a single word of peace was uttered or talked about during this meeting. The primary conversation that Emmanuel Macron really brought them together for is uh, to um, talk about sending NATO troops, you know, uniform NATO troops directly into the conflict. Uh, and so it has been breached. I mean, this has been talked about before. We talked about it a few weeks ago about leaked papers from the United Kingdom for a proposal for a NATO expeditionary force. We heard from the former Ukrainian ambassador to the UK about contingency plans to do so. Now it has been said, and it has been said by one of the top Western leaders, by, by the president of France. The immediate response from most European leaders was no, or we have no plans for that at this time from another of countries. Um, the United Kingdom immediately responded, we have no plans to send more troops than we already have there, <laughs> um, which, which of, of course, is a rather interesting non-denial. Yeah. Um, and um, it, yeah, I mean, it, it should be remembered, uh, and the Financial Times reminded of, us of this uh, in the hour since, that uh, NATO has special forces all over Ukraine, right? H hundreds of uh, special forces and intelligence. Uh, the British papers have told us already uh, uh, more than a year ago that they have 300 Marines, Royal Marines there, uh, on the ground uh, uh, conducting high-risk operations right so uh, yeah. nato is already involved uh and i think emmanuel macron is particularly uh incensed because there was an incident a little over a month ago that russia complained about very loudly where um outside Kharkov, um a not well but yeah uh, a number of um what it says uh russia says were french mercenaries um, were killed in a Russian missile strike, and France denied that they had anyone there, and then they admitted them, admitted it, but then that they were just volunteers. And what it turns out, of course, is that these are a number of French Foreign Legion specialists and uh, weapon, uh, high-tech weapon specialists, like like those who operate air defense systems, who all coincidentally just happened to um, uh, uh, resign from military service and become humanitarian workers uh, in mm -hmm. Ukraine. Uh, so, um, and then uh, when France, having denied that they were there, uh, uh, secretly sent officers to recover the bodies, Russia hit again. And Macron evidently is incensed uh, over this. Uh, so this leads the way. Uh, right now, Macron pointed out that there is not a consensus for this now. But like how every country in uh, Europe and the United States is, have shifted position 
on the amount and type of lethal aid they will provide Ukraine since the beginning of the conflict. Joe Biden once famously said uh, back in February of 2022 that he would not that the U.S. could not send tanks or jets to Ukraine uh, because that would be World War Three. And here we are with America, the first American Abrams confirmed destroyed after finally showing up uh, on the battlefield. Uh, so um, and he says that eventually everyone will will come down, uh, will change position or enough of them will probably not all of NATO together. It will be more a coalition of the willing thing. Uh, and I have to say, I agree with him because the amount of desperation uh, that is already evidenced panic just at the fact that they're having to ad- acknowledge that Russia is now winning the conflict decisively. Right. The right. Kiev regime, uh, according to many Western papers, is facing collapse, uh, a cascading collapses along the front time uh, sometime later this year, according to the New York Times. And when Russia moves on Kharkov, the uh, Ukraine's second largest city in the Russian speaking East or towards Kiev, well, they'll get more desperate and desperate people do dangerous things. And we've heard time and time again, that U.S. global leadership, the rules based order, i.e. U.S. led Western global hegemony is on the line. They really believe that. And they, they, they cannot be seen as losing to Russia. That's right. This is their existential moment. There is. Hey, Dmitry Peskov, the spokesperson for President Putin, said, "Yes, if they do what Macron said, it would not only make the direct collision between NATO and a Russia probability." Possible, he said, "Inevitable." An inevitable. It would be an inevitability. Yes. Yes. Okay. Mark, thank you so much for your time and your expertise, as always. Thanks for having me. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. <laughs> For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. In northern Gaza, at least 104 Palestinians in a crowd desperate for food aid have been killed and 760 more wounded near Gaza City. RT's Maria Finoshina reports. Efforts to fully displace Palestinians from their land and, quote, obliterate the Palestinian cause. Many of the wounded were evacuated to the Shifa and other hospitals, those few that are still functioning in the north of the Palestinian enclave, including Kamal Adwan Hospital, from which we received a confirmation and a video of the injured and killed. Here's what the victims have to say. We were on Al-Rashid Street and suddenly tanks stormed us. There were the parcels packed with aid. People who don't have food, who lack flour and aid, headed to the sea. It was chaos. There were crowds of people, but the occupation kept firing at us. There were so many martyrs and casualties. I am one of the wounded. I was on Al-Rashid Street. We were there from 7 in the morning in order to get food for our children. They are liars. They said, we brought aid, but we paid for that aid with our blood. My nephews went there to bring flour, but they fired on them. We're under siege. Take pity on us. Ramadan is coming soon. People should look at us. Pity us. 
Humanitarian crisis in Gaza continues deepening with numerous human rights organizations reporting that fewer trucks crossed into the enclave recently, blaming Israel for delays and for blocking the vehicles carrying food, water and medical supplies at the checkpoints. Fewer emissions were also able to reach those in need. Those organizations also reported that almost no aid is distributed outside Rafah, the major city in Gaza's south, where now around 1.5 million people crowded after they had to flee the hostilities in other parts of the Strip. The food that people were waiting for at the time of the attack on Thursday morning was brought by a rare convoy the, that reached the north of the enclave. Israeli officials said the first major delivery in a month to the devastated, isolated area. The UN says a quarter of Gaza's 2.3 million strong population is one step from famine, including thousands of children, while literally everyone the organization says is in desperate need of food. And all that comes while UNRWA, a key humanitarian aid provider in Gaza that almost half of all functioning relief organizations have been relying on even before this war, said it has been forced to pause aid deliveries to northern Gaza. Meanwhile, the Palestinian Health Ministry says at least 30,000 people have been killed in the Gaza Strip since the beginning of the Israeli offensive on October 7. The ministry has also stated that the Strip medical facilities are not able to cope with the current wave of the wounded due to, of course, lack of medical supplies and medical personnel. And the governmental body has urged the international community to put pressure on Israel to open humanitarian corridors and stop the atrocities in Gaza. Global efforts pushing for a ceasefire also grow, as you know, but so far we see that Israel seems to be determined to continue this devastating war. While the UK government continues to support Israel's ongoing genocidal campaign in the Gaza Strip, it is the people in Britain who are bearing the cost of it. Saeed Bereza has more. Filling up the tank, emptying out the pockets, Britons are again having to pay more for fuel. Petrol prices are up more than 3p per litre at the time of this report, while diesel has risen by 4p. That means the cost of filling up a typical family car in the UK has now increased. Prices had supposedly bottomed out from the record highs in 22, in large part caused by the UK and other NATO countries' self-imposed sanctions on Russian energy imports at the start of the Ukraine war in the same year. So here's what happened this time around. The value of what comes out of this little nozzle here is impacted by the price of oil on international markets and by the value of the pound against the dollar, because oil is traded in dollars. The new pump price increases have been brought about by a recent jump in the price of oil. And one reason for that can be sought in the foreign policy decisions by the UK and its allies in the energy-rich Middle East. Decisions such as supporting Israel's ongoing genocidal war on Gaza which has led Yemen's armed forces to launch attacks on Israel-bound ships, including UK vessels. There is a rise, obviously, to do with the fact that the tankers are not able to go through the Suez Canal because the insurance rates have gone through the roof if you try to do that. So they're diverting the tankers around the, you know, Cape Horn um, of Africa. And that is, of course, means that the shipping costs are getting higher because there's less ships available than normal. And also, you know, transportation costs, labour and hiring the tankers um, for longer. The British Chambers of Commerce says more than half of the UK retailers and exporters have been affected by the disruption to the Red Sea trade. 
with a 300% increase in the price of shipping a single container from Asia to Europe. All this as the UK-US bombing of Yemen continues, essentially adding fuel to the fire. Yemen is embracing imp imp implementing international law by trying to prevent a genocide and it's absolutely absurd for the UK government to go along with the US empire in actually bombing these uh, Yemeni positions uh, and uh, actually as a result of uh, that causing a situation where the cost of living is increasing in Britain because of the ridiculous foreign policy that our politicians are embracing. So what we have here is the British government tying the welfare of its own citizens to that of a rogue regime intent on committing genocide. South Korean civil groups have demanded an end to massive Freedom Shield joint war games by the United States and South Korea, scheduled to begin March 4th and run through March 14th. Frank Smith has more. The U.S. and South Korea Wednesday announced they will conduct large-scale joint military drills beginning next week to run for 11 days. The U.S. said the drills are routine. These exercises, they're nothing to do. These are the same exercises that we've been doing for decades. The drills have previously been suspended to improve relations with the DPRK, but current South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol has resumed the drills as part of a hardline policy against Pyongyang, which is opposed by many South Koreans. The Yoon Suk-yeol administration and the U.S.-South Korea-Japan alliance must immediately cease all hostile military actions on and around the Korean Peninsula and resume the Korean Peninsula peace process by withdrawing its hostile policy toward North Korea. Activists warn military exercises can also generate miscalculations and accidents. Isn't military training itself preparing for war? Because we are aware of the danger that may occur. We are opposed to military training because such training conducted in our country could lead to a crisis that could even lead to a war if we make a mistake. South Korea had at least two missile failures under President Yoon, with one rocket crashing near a residential area. Much of the South Korean public appears not to worry about the DPRK and the security risk the provocative U.S.-South Korea drills involve. But it is there in the back of everyone's minds. This feeling of risk of conflict with the DPRK even causes South Korean stocks to be undervalued, a so-called Korea discount. In the past two years especially, the U.S. and South Korea have increased the number and scale of weapons deployed to the Korean Peninsula, including nuclear-capable planes and ships. Activists call for dialogue. Hostile policies against North Korea and armed protests only deepen the vicious cycle and can never be a solution. Peace through force is a fiction. Negotiations and improved relations for peaceful coexistence are the only realistic and correct ways to resolve the issue. The U.S. has said it will negotiate with Pyongyang without conditions, yet stipulating U.S.-led U.N. sanctions over the DPRK's nuclear and missile programs must remain. And that's all in today's international news from non-NATO media. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'm Paulina Vasilya. In your KPFK's Rebel Alliance calendar, registration is now open for the first-ever Adaptive Sports Fair. Embrace inclusivity, diversity, and the power of adaptive sports for special needs kids. Put on by Playmakers, SoCal Adaptive Sports, the Long Beach City College Foundation, and Long Beach City College to bring this event to Long Beach. The event will be on April 13th at Long Beach City College from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. 
To register, go to eventbrite.com, Long Beach Adaptive Sports Fair tickets. Also, commemoration in San Pedro of the 100th anniversary of the murderous attack by the KKK of an IWW labor hall. The attack in 1924, which ended the Wobblies in San Pedro, was followed by the building of a large KKK headquarters nearby. City Councilman of CD15, Tim Koster, and Vice President of the Harbor Commission, Diane Middleton, will speak at the event. On March 5th, starting at 1 p.m. at 12th and Center Street at the Wobbly Hall site. The one-mile procession and re-envisioning discussion will end at 3 p.m. Wearing walking shoes. For more information, contact San Pedro Neighbors for Peace and Justice. We're coming to the end of our show, but before we sign off on this Friday edition of KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'll ask you one more time to pick up a phone and dial 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Become a member of our Sustainer Circle and join the KPFK family by donating $25, $50, $100 or more. Real Public Radio for Southern California the only place that can broadcast a message that is not approved by America's corporate owners. So please pick up your phone and dial 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Or go online to kpfk.org and donate to this iconic, one-of-a-kind LA radio station. Help us keep KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles on the air by picking up your phones and calling 818-985-5735. Again, 818-985-5735. Or go to our website at kpfk.org and donate today. And thank you. This has been your Friday edition of KPFK Rebel Alliance News. I'd like to thank our engineer, Wendell Handy, and tonight's Rebel Alliance News contributors, Marcy Winograd, Don DeBar, and Paulina Vasiliev. And of course, our show's producer, Zeri Rideau. KPFK's Rebel Alliance News will be back on Monday, but stay tuned because coming up next is Soul Rebel Radio. Have a great weekend, Rebels. From the hashtag New Cal Exit YouTube channel, Red Star Report, I'm Hal Lohr for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. Peace, everybody. This is DJ Sean O, and you are listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. I wanted to let you know you can check out Soundwaves Radio with hosts Val the Vandal and myself each and every Friday evening from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on 90.7 FM KPFK Los Angeles. It's leap year, and following this first fun drive of the year, KPFK is making a great leap. We're relocating our operations temporarily from our historic North Hollywood home to a spot in Glendale, about seven miles east. KPFK was launched in 1959 with the great leap of faith that listeners would sustain its operations with their donations. And as we make the figurative leap across the Hollywood Hills and the L.A. River, your continued donations will assist us in making what we hope will be a soft landing. Our drive continues until March 8th, and with the extra day in February, you have expanded opportunities to show your support by donating. Please to show your support by donating online at kpfk.org.